0: Genesis chapter 12 verses 10 to 20. Now there was a famine in the land and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me but will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you When Abram went to Egypt apologies when Abram came to Egypt the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman and when Pharaoh's officials saw her they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household, on, on Pharaoh and his household, because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abraham to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, doesn't this passage just make you want to go, Abram? what are you thinking? It's just bizarre, isn't it? It's just weird. What is he doing? And it's extra shocking because last week things seemed to get off to such an encouraging start. Last week, we saw the call of Abraham, everything seemed to start so well. God turns up to Abram in a far off land and he says, Abram, leave your family, your homeland, everything you know. And go to this other place that I'm telling you about. And Abraham says, sure. And he does. And by the end of last week's passage, he seems all in with God. If you've got the passage open, just look back to, uh, 12 verse 8. Sorry, 12 verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I'll give this land. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. Then he moves on verse 8 to another area and there he builds another altar to the Lord. And it says, and he called on the name of the Lord. And we think, brilliant. After all the chaos of the first 11 chapters of the Bible, now, now maybe things are going to start well. And get this, today's incident. As the author of Preaching from the Book of Genesis, the wonderfully named Mark Thrite says, the Genesis narratives seem to have little if anything to do with faith. Their content, rape, murder, strife and jealousy between brothers, two unsatisfied wives fighting over the sexual attentions of their husband, and cunning deception within families seems more appropriate to afternoon soap operas than God's revealed word. And he's right, isn't he? This is just bizarre. Well, it is bizarre, no two ways about it, but it is still good. And so with care, we will be able to hear what God will say to us this morning. But in order to read it carefully, I just want to give us two quick points on how we interpret Old Testament narrative. Firstly, description is not prescription. I.e., just because something is described in the Bible as having happened, that doesn't mean that it is suggested or prescribed that we act in the same way. Description is not prescription. This is one of the many things that Richard Dawkins misunderstands in his book, Delusion. But many Christians also fall into the same trap when they're trying to read the Old Testament, of thinking that we should always follow the example of the heroes of the faith which gives us a real problem when we come to passages like the one before us today. So, firstly, when we're reading Old Testament narrative, description is not prescription. Just because something is described doesn't mean we should do it. Secondly, don't always look for the Bible to tell you what to think, or to tell you explicitly God's verdict on something. Sometimes it will. So at the end of um, David's uh, adultery with Bathsheba and murder of her husband Uriah, And he seems to get away with it. And then at the end of the chapter, there's just this little verse. But what David did displeased the Lord. But we don't get that in a passage like today's. So where there isn't any narrator's verdict, we need to look carefully. What do the characters say? What do they do? And what are the consequences of their actions? And when we do that carefully, normally God's perspective will come clear. So description is not prescription, and don't always look for a narrator's comment. So no further ado, let's look at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Abram was a nomad. He needed grazing land for his flocks and his herds. He'd already been moving around within the land of Canaan. He's now in the south, and so when when famine hits, it makes sense to go a little further south. the the land where the Nile floods twice a year, making it one of the most fertile and prosperous nations in the ancient world, the mighty Egypt. In fact, ancient Egyptian texts from this time actually talk about um, uh, visitors arriving, foreigners arriving at the time of famine. So Abram probably wasn't the only one arriving. Now, if we know our Bibles, Egypt might sound immediately ominous to us. But actually, this is the first mention of Egypt in the Old Testament. So at this stage, we should reserve our judgment. After all, it seems a fairly sensible move. Abram needs grazing land. These guys have got food, so he heads down their way. But it's what comes next that likely gives us pause for thought. Verse 11. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Now, those are actually Abram's first words in the book of Genesis. And if those were all we had, we might think, what a charmer. The first was, I know what a beautiful woman you are. But it's all downhill from there on in. I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I'll be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. For some reason, whether he's heard rumors of what life is like in Egypt or whether he met a bad bunch of Egyptians at some point, he's got some concerns and so he comes up with his little plan. And it seems that Sarah wasn't just beautiful in Abram's eyes, but also in the eyes of the Egyptians. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. So what are we to make of this? Abram is afraid that he might be killed so that the Egyptians can take away his beautiful wife, Sarai, and have her for themselves. And so he says to her, Say you're my sister, so I'll be treated well, and my life will be spared. What is he thinking? Well, here, just for a moment, it gets us slightly complicated because there are different ways to interpret Abram's actions. On face value, basically, he's setting her up to be sold to the highest bidder so that he gets rich from the dowry and he is just handing over his wife to allow her to commit adultery, to save his skin, and fatten his wallet. That's the kind of face value worst interpretation. That might be what's going on. The most positive interpretation is that what he might have been hoping was that by saying she was his sister, he might be able to have delayed suitors and kind of taken their gifts and said, yeah, no, I'll get back to you, I'll get back to you, I'll get back to you, I'll get back to you. Hopefully until the famine was over and then they could run away richer than when they started. That's the most positive interpretation. But given what happens next, there is no version of this story where Abram comes out looking good. Positive or negative, there's no version where he comes out looking good. Because of what happens then in verses 15 and 16. When Pharaoh's official saw Sarai, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. So on the more negative reading, this was Abram's plan coming together perfectly. Sarai goes off to join the harem, not only of any old rich Egyptian, but the richest, the most powerful Egyptian in the land. And not only does Abram get to live, he gets to live in luxury, well-treated and made rich. On the more positive reading of the text, this is an awkward twist for Abram. He might have been able to fend off the interests of average Joe rich Egyptian, but when Pharaoh comes along, we well, you don't say no to Pharaoh. But even then, even if it was that more positive interpretation, this is where Abram, if he had been a truly righteous man, would have stood up and said, Mr. Pharaoh, sir, a little bit awkward. I may not have been completely honest with you. This is actually my wife, and I cannot let this happen. That is what he should have done. As I read and reread these verses this week, read and reread verse 13, I, I just thought to myself, why is verse 13 so nauseating? Why is it so unpleasant? Because it is a complete reversal of how husbands are supposed to behave. He's effectively saying, I'm going to put you on the line so that I can be enriched. And it put my mind forward to Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Put her first. That is how Abram should have behaved. As many of you know, I've not been a husband very long, only a couple of months. I know it's not always easy to put your wife first. As everyone in the room knows, it's not hard to put other people before ourselves. It's not easy to put other people before ourselves. But that is the model of how husbands should behave. They should put their wives first. And that is why this sickens us to our stomachs, or should. Because Abraham is reversing the way that he should behave. And so he should at that point have said, no, I can't let this happen. But instead there is just a silence, a guilty silence as Sarai is taken off to Pharaoh's palace, and the text is ambiguous here, whether it's just sparing our blushes or whether it's deliberately ambiguous. Is Sarai just taken into the palace, or does the Pharaoh sleep with her? We don't know for sure, but the severity of what follows might point us to a more negative reading of that, because God sends serious diseases to show his displeasure, and he sends them on. Well, who would you expect To have serious diseases sent on them at this point? Well, Abram, surely. The disobedient one, Pharaoh, you know, he's not sort of completely smelling of roses in this story. But Abram's the lying cheat who, whether willingly or unwillingly, has allowed his wife to go off at least towards the bed of another man. And is now, it seems, fairly happily getting fat and rich off the situation. But it's not Abram that receives these diseases. Verse 17, the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. And then we get one of these situations that occur a few other places in the Old Testament and some places in the New Testament as well where someone who's not apparently part of God's people seems to show a better understanding of what is righteous than those who are supposedly God's people. Pharaoh, by whatever means, finds out why this is happening. Verse 18. So Pharaoh summoned Abraham, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. And I don't know about you, but I think Abraham gets off pretty lightly. He went in worried that they might kill him for his wife. He puts Pharaoh through the situation, and amazingly, Pharaoh doesn't take his head off and keep his wife and take back all his riches. But somehow, Abram gets to leave with his wife and with everything he had, and he just gets to ride off into the sunset seemingly happily. So, Abram, what are we to make of him? Last week we thought, is this the guy? Is he the one, the righteous one, who will lead us back to God's blessing? If you remember Steve's brief summary last week, you'll know there's a lot more here at stake than just Abram's life. God made the world good, a place of blessing, but then as we turned away from God... The first humans were sent out of that place of blessing into a world that had become cursed. And the question from then on is, is there any way back? Is there any way back in? But after that, things get worse and worse and worse and worse until Abram. And he gets those great promises. And if this were a film, there'd be a moment, there would be a moment where someone would look significantly at Abram and say, The fate of the world is in your hands which it quite literally is. And how does he do? Well, as we said at the beginning, this seems like a surprise after last week. Gordon Wenham in his commentary says, after the great expectations aroused by the first episode in the Abramic cycle story, this second one surprises us by the unheroic performance of the hero. Which is exactly the point. Because Abram's not... The hero. He was supposed to bring blessing to the nations, but on his first encounter with the nations, all he brings is curses. And yet we still have the promises that God made to him. Promises that were not conditional on his behavior. Promises where God just said, I will. Not, I will if you're good enough, I will if you're righteous enough, just. I will. And here in this first next episode where everything goes so terribly wrong, we see just how unconditional these promises are. God said to Abram, I will bless you. And so although Abram's behavior deserves no reward, far from it, yet he gets away with his life and with great wealth. Because God had made a promise, no conditions. I will bless you. And God also said to Abram, slightly more uncomfortably, whoever curses you, I will curse. And so when Pharaoh, however, unknowingly takes Abram's wife into his harem, and thereby one might say curses Abram, God curses Pharaoh, the one who has cursed Abram, because God had made an unconditional promise. The one who curses you, I will curse Abram. That great hero of the faith, God's friend, behaves terribly and is blessed anyway. How do you feel about that? Abram behaves terribly and is blessed anyway. I don't like it. He doesn't deserve to be treated that way. He's not done well. Abram doesn't deserve to be blessed the way that he behaves. God is giving Abram what he doesn't deserve. God is showing Abram grace. The same way that God shows us grace, treating us not as our sins deserve. Abram wasn't good enough. He wasn't the righteous one, able to live under God's rule and bring blessing back to the world. And neither would his son Isaac, long promised, long awaited, nor any of the other Old Testament characters. But it would be a long-promised, long-awaited son who would bring that blessing. One who would lead a righteous life, living perfectly under God's rule like no one else ever has. And it's because of him that we know that the greatest love is not to put yourself first. The greatest love is not to love yourself, as Abram did. But rather, the greatest love is to lay down your life for another And when Jesus was confronted again and again and again with the opportunity to save his own life, he chose not to. In the wilderness, in Gethsemane, at his trial, even as he was being crucified again and again, he chooses not to save his life, but he chooses to lose his life. He chose not to seek wealth, but gave up his wealth, became poor so that we might become rich, blessed in him. Jesus' life, well, his was the only life ever that has deserved God's blessing. But instead, he received curses in life and in death, poverty, rejection, loneliness, cruelty, betrayal, injustice, crucifixion. Far from being prepared to sacrifice his bride to save himself, he sacrifices himself to save his bride, the church. But on that cross, as Jesus died... The wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid, so that in the death of Christ we can live. Jesus was cursed, so that we can be blessed in him. We receive the blessings Jesus deserved. And although we said that at the beginning this passage initially comes as a surprise, well, actually, if we take the Bible as a whole, or even just the end of the Bible, it shouldn't be so much of a surprise. Who did Jesus appoint to be foremost among the disciples? Peter, who denied him three times. Who does Jesus appoint to testify for for rulers and kings and take the gospel out to the Gentiles? Well, the apostle Paul, who previously persecuted Christians and even murdered them. Who's the first to be welcomed into paradise? Well, it's the thief on the cross next to Jesus, guilty of a crime serious enough to be crucified for, brought in on faith alone. So it should be no surprise that this is how it has been since the beginning. That God dealt with Abram by grace, just as he deals with us, by grace. And so nothing in our past can disqualify us from receiving that grace, from coming to Christ and being welcomed into the people of God, with the eager expectation of later, when we die or when Jesus returns, being welcomed into his presence And receiving the fullness of his blessing. And if we're Christians, if we've put our faith in Christ, if we are in Jesus, then God continues, praise God, to deal with us by grace. He promises to bless us, to welcome us, not conditional on our obedience, but on Jesus who was obedient. That doesn't mean God doesn't want us to grow in our faith. He does. And we'll see Abram grow in his faith over the weeks like our growth it's slow it's stumbling sometimes one step forward and two steps back but God operates always has operated by grace giving people like us what we don't deserve let's pray father god thank you that that is how you deal with each and every one of us. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sitting here this morning. You find us as we are. You forgive us our past, and you enable us to walk by your grace into a new future. And we pray that we would, each one of us, put our trust in that, not in ourselves, not in our own righteousness, that we wouldn't let our knowledge of our lack of righteousness hold us back but that we might trust daily in that grace and walk in it each day of our lives. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.